Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome back to Out of the Vat. We've had a bit of an extended pandemic-induced break, but now we're back with a podcast about philosophers' work and philosophers' lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Joining us today via a very well-known piece of video conferencing software is Lucy Campbell. Lucy is an assistant professor at the University of Warwick, specialising in the philosophy of mind and action, in epistemology and in the intersection of the two. She's currently working on a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship on epistemological pluralism. Hi Lucy, good to have you here. Hello. Um, can you first tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of different papers. One of them is a joint paper with Alexander Greenberg, who's a postdoc at UCL. And that's about this notion of mental agency. Mental agency, what's that? Well, it's the idea that at least some of the things that go on in our minds or some of our mental phenomena are actions. And recently there's been a kind of trend of trying to explain various different phenomena in the philosophy of mind uh, and in epistemology by appealing to this notion of mental agency. Alexander and I are a bit sceptical of this trend. So we think, yes, it's probably right to think that some of our mental phenomena are in some sense actions or active, but it's not obvious um, it's not obvious that it's particularly explanatory to try to understand the kinds of phenomena that people have tried to understand in terms of uh, the notion of mental agency. So in particular, we look at three different phenomena that people have tried to explain in terms of the notion of mental agency. One of them is responsibility for belief. It looks like we can hold each other responsible for what beliefs people have or what beliefs we have. And you might think, well, if beliefs are a kind of action or if they're relevantly associated with a kind of action, then that would make sense because we hold people responsible for the actions that they perform. So mm -hmm. if beliefs are a kind of action, then that's why we hold people responsible for the beliefs that they have. And, and we cast some doubt on that way of thinking about responsibility for belief. The second phenomenon is phenomenon of uh, self-knowledge. And self-knowledge in philosophy is a technical term, which means the knowledge that you have of your own states of mind. So your, your knowledge that you believe that it's raining, for example, or your knowledge that you want to catch the bus. And again, people have tried to understand how we have this knowledge about our own, certain of our own states of mind, at least, by thinking of those states of mind as bound up with our agency again. So again, if you think of believing as a kind of action, you might think, well, think about our actions in the ordinary sense of action. Think about drinking a cup of coffee or something like that. That's the kind of thing we can have a special kind of knowledge of. So if our beliefs are a kind of action, then that would explain why we can have a special kind of knowledge of our own beliefs. And again, you see what's coming. We're kind of sceptical of that. And so the third phenomenon that people try and explain in terms of the notion of mental agency, this is a little bit different. Um, and this is the notion of thought insertion, which is a, a kind of symptom that some people experience in psychosis where they'll sort of have a thought, but they won't experience that thought as their own. And they'll say things like, so-and-so um, was putting these thoughts into my head. They weren't my own thoughts. And some people have thought that what goes wrong in this delusion is that whereas usually our own episodes of thinking come with a kind of sense of agency to them. So normally when you're thinking, you kind of view yourself as an agent of your own thoughts. Um, they think what goes wrong in the phenomenon of thought insertion is that this sense of agency is lacking. 
But again, we think it's not quite as easy as suggesting that the difference between so-called inserted thoughts and ordinary thoughts is just that there's a sense of agency lacking with the inserted thoughts. So again, we're a bit sceptical that the notion of mental agency can sort of straightforwardly be a pivotal to explain this phenomenon of thought insertion. So I'm not going to go into any detail at all about the precise arguments we have against those ideas because we're still in the process of working out exactly what they look like but that's one of the things that I'm working on. Are you, uh, can you maybe give us an idea of what your alternative account might be? We don't think there's, that there's a single explanation of all three of these different phenomena which kind of rivals the mental agency explanation. So maybe I'll just say something about one of these phenomena and at least how I, I would want to think about it um, as an alternative to the mental agency explanation. Yeah, great. So the thing that I work on out of these three phenomena, responsibility for belief, self-knowledge and thought insertion, the one that I work on mostly is self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the way that I want to think about self-knowledge in particular, taking the example of self-knowledge of belief, is that believing itself at least if certain additional conditions are met, is sufficient for knowing that you believe what you believe. So I currently believe that it's a Thursday. Just my having that belief is enough for me to know that I believe that it's a Thursday. I don't think we need to build in also the idea that having that belief is an exercise of my agency. So I kind of think the appeal to agency in that context is just a red herring. There's such a thing as having a self-conscious belief. And whether or not we think of beliefs as exercises of our agency, that's kind of beside the point when we want to understand self-knowledge. Okay, great. Um, And so can you tell me about anything else you've been working on recently? Yeah, so there's there's a second paper that I'm working on, which is a solo paper. And this is about testimony and knowledge of other minds. So testimony is a technical term in philosophy, which doesn't just mean the kind of things that people say in court, but it basically means things that you know because of other people have told you them. So let's take a really boring example. If you tell me that it's raining and I come to know that it's raining because you've told me that it's raining, then I have testimonial knowledge or knowledge through testimony that it's raining. So that's testimony, knowledge by testimony. Knowledge of other minds is just what it says on the tin, really. It's my knowledge or your knowledge about what's going on with somebody else in their mind. So if you've got a headache and I know you've got a headache, then my knowledge that you've got a headache is knowledge of other minds. And what's kind of interesting to me about these two topics, testimony and knowledge of other minds, is that on the one hand, a lot of our knowledge of other minds is knowledge through testimony. So a lot of the things I know about other people, about their psychology and their feelings and their thoughts and so on, I know because those people have told me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you might tell me you've got a headache and then I know you've got a headache. So that's testimonial knowledge of your mind. But although that's a really common phenomenon, and obviously philosophers recognise that that's a really common phenomenon, there isn't really much of a literature in the intersection of these two areas of testimonial knowledge and knowledge of other minds. And that's kind of interesting. I think there are probably some historical reasons for that. One of them being that, at least coming from the perspective of work on knowledge of other minds, a lot of people have thought about that, the question of knowledge of other minds from the perspective of trying to combat scepticism about other minds. So so there's a kind of sceptical worry about other minds, which is something like, well, I'm looking at you, you're engaging in all this kind of all sorts of behaviour 
and say I judge on the basis of your behavior that you've got a headache, fine, that's clearly how I make the judgment that you've got a headache. But why does my judgment count as knowledge that you've got a headache? After all, couldn't you be going in for exactly the same behavior, but just not have a headache? So it looks like I can't have sort of direct access to your headache. I can just see your behavior. I can't actually see the thing beyond it, which is your headache. And you might think that talking about testimonial knowledge of other minds isn't really going to help with that problem because say I'm looking at you and rather than you screwing your face up in pain, you say, quote unquote, I've got a headache. Well, it still seems to be the case that the only thing I have direct knowledge of is your behaviour. It's the words coming out of your mouth, the sounds that you're making. But in order to know that you've got a headache by knowing that you're making these sounds, I need to know, first of all, that the sounds are actually meaningful, which presumably requires knowing that those sounds actually express your view on whether or not you've got a headache. And I also need to know that what you're saying is true. So I need to know that you're being sincere or something like that. And it looks like knowing both of those things is already having knowledge about your mind so that what you say to me can't itself give me knowledge of your mind unless I've already got some knowledge about your mind. But if our question is, well, how do I get knowledge of your mind in the first place? Then your testimony isn't isn't going to be a route to that for me. So I think that's a kind of historical reason why people haven't been interested in testimonial knowledge of other minds as a kind of distinctive topic in epistemology. However, I also think that it's still a bit strange that that these days there isn't more of a literature on this topic because people seem to be interested in knowledge of other minds kind of independently of worries about scepticism. And given that context, it's odd and it's interesting that there's not more of a literature on testimonial knowledge of other minds. So, yeah, that's sort of some background that I think is kind of interesting about the topic in general. And then the paper that I'm writing on this is actually to do with how knowledge of other minds that we get through observing people's purely expressive and non-linguistic behaviour might be kind of similar to the knowledge of other minds that we get through people's testimony in the sense that in a person's having both kinds of knowledge might require that they understand something like meaning. So in the testimonial case, it would understand me understanding the meaning of your words, I've got a headache. But in the case where you just, you know, you're just looking pained and I can see that, my knowing that you have a headache might involve me understanding something that's a bit like meaning, i.e. the meaning of your facial expression. And if there is a distinctive kind of meaning here, I think there are some really interesting questions about what it's like, how it relates to linguistic meaning, what it is to understand that kind of meaning and those kinds of questions. So that's kind of what my paper is looking at. Okay, okay, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. Do you, do you have anything particular to say about knowledge of the minds of non-human animals along these along these lines? That's a really interesting question. Definitely we can know about non-human animals' minds. Mm -hmm. certain things about their minds so I think that's got to be like a kind of non-negotiable starting point for thinking about this and I also think other animals can in some sense know things about each other's minds and about our minds Mm -hmm. but then there's a question about what exactly that amounts to And, and I'm just not really sure what to say about that I think it's certainly the case that the sense in which I can know that a dog is scared Mm-hmm. is quite different to the sense in which a dog can know that I am scared. 
Okay. Partly because I, I have an understanding of quote unquote what it is to be scared that yeah. is quite general and the dog is not going to have anything like that. If you think about a scale of views that a person might have on animal minds, at the one end, there's this kind of crazy anthropomorphizing approach where, you know, sometimes you see these documentaries on the TV about people that have monkey babies and like dress them up in nappies and and say, oh, she really loves her mum, you know, referring to themselves. That's not the way to think about animal minds, even very closely related animals like great apes. But I don't think we should go all the way down the other end of the scale either, which would be at its most extreme to just think that any attribution of mentality to animals is kind of being sentimental and being sort of silly. Like it's got to be somewhere in the middle between those two. And then and then I think there are really interesting questions about exactly where we should be between those two extremes. One thing I like thinking about is cases where animals and humans actually work together to achieve some aim. Now, there are different kinds of cases like that. There's a case of like, you know, a horse and cart where the horse is sort of just doing what it's told. So you might think that it's just in condition to respond to certain signals and commands and so on. But then there are more interesting cases, I think, like a sheepdog and a shepherd herding sheep. Like, of course, it's important to that, that the dog's been conditioned to respond to certain whistles and certain commands. But I also think that if you actually watch these things like sheepdog trials, it's not clear to me that you can understand the entirety of the sheepdog's behaviour without thinking the sheepdog actually has some sense of the goal in mind, i.e. getting the sheep through this small hole in the fence or whatever. If it was just the sheepdog responding to the shepherd's commands and like moving a bit further away that way or stopping or going a bit faster or whatever, I think it'd be actually very hard to get the very detailed and specific outcomes that the sheepdog and the shepherd together need to get when they're engaged in something like a sheepdog trial. So I really don't know, like I don't, I haven't worked on this. I would need to think a lot more about it. But my sense is that the questions are very difficult and and precisely knowing, you know, to what extent there's genuine communication going on here and to what extent is it just an animal like responding to cues that it's learnt. I don't think it's an easy question to sort of decide between those two and to, to decide exactly where in the middle we should sort of be thinking. Okay, what's the most controversial philosophical position that you've ever held? Possibly that might be the idea that knowing that something's the case doesn't entail believing that it's the case. Um, So that kind of sounds pretty outlandish, probably just saying it at its most general (laughs) like that. But in particular, the idea is that there are certain kinds of knowledge which don't entail belief. So I wouldn't deny that knowing that today is a Thursday entails believing that today is a Thursday, for example. Mm -hmm. The kinds of knowledge where I think that maybe, maybe they don't entail belief are in particular kinds of first person knowledge of our own states of mind, what I called self-knowledge earlier on, and our knowledge of our own intentional actions. So say I'm going to go to the library later on, which is impossible during COVID, but imagine it isn't. I know that I've decided to go to the library, Mm -hmm. right? So I know I'm I'm going to go to the library. Do I believe that I'm going to go to the library? Well, I think that really depends on what you mean by belief. If you just mean something like, would I say, yes, I'm going to the library if somebody asked me? then I'm happy to say that I believe I'm going to the library in that sense. 
But actually, actually, I think normally when we talk about belief, we don't mean anything as thin as that. We mean a kind of attitude which ought to be backed up by good reasons, by good epistemic reasons. So reasons for thinking that the thing is true. And I don't think that we have beliefs about what we're going to do once we've decided to do them in that sense of belief. So if you say, are you going to the library later? And I say, yes. Or if you say, what are you doing later? And I say, I'm going to the library. It doesn't look like you can then say, oh, well, what makes you think you're going to the library? Or what's your evidence for believing that you're going to the library? Rather, it looks like that that's just not a relevant question. The real question is something like, Or if you want to ask me any question about why I just said what I said, the question is going to be something like, why do you want to go to the library? And I say, well, I'm going to get some books. But the fact that I'm going to get some books is not evidence for thinking I'm going to go to the library. That's a reason for going to the library. So this is a point that, at least as I read her, Elizabeth Anscombe made um, about our knowledge of our, our own intentional actions that having knowledge about our own intentional actions, and that's either actions that we're currently in the midst of performing or actions that we decided to perform in the future, having knowledge about those or knowledge that you are doing them or knowledge that you're going to do them, it's not a belief involving phenomenon. It's, on the contrary, an intention involving phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So Anscombe called this kind of knowledge, knowledge in intention. And as I read her, it means that it's in virtue of intending to go to the library that I know I'm going to go to the library. It's not in virtue of believing that I'm going to go to the library, that I know that I'm going to go to the library. So that doesn't quite get us the controversial view, which I started out with when you asked your question, which I said was the idea that knowledge doesn't entail belief. Because you might think that this kind of knowledge of of intentional action, it's not sort of constituted by believing that I'm going to go to the library. Instead, it's constituted by intending to go to the library. But you might think that, nevertheless, I do still believe that I'm going to go to the library. So you might think my knowledge that I'm going to go to the library is constituted by my intention to go there. But given that I have the knowledge, that also kind of gives me a belief that I'm going to go there, as well as having the intention. Now, that might be right, and I'm not quite sure. I think I've got a slightly slightly less strong view on this now than I used to have. I used to just want to say, no, belief isn't entailed at all by knowledge that I'm going to go to the library. Now I'd want to say, well, maybe it is, but I would want my opponent to give me a good reason for thinking that, to give me a good reason for thinking that all of the things that we need to understand about this kind of knowledge that I've got, that I'm going to go to the library, give me a good reason to think that we need to think of me as believing that I'm going to go there, in addition to just intending to go there. So my, my sense is that actually perhaps just thinking of me as intending to go there is sufficient to understand everything we need to understand about my knowledge that I'm going to go there. And if that's right, then there's at least no good reason to think that this kind of knowledge that I'm going to go to the library entails a belief that I'm going to go to the library. Zooming out again to the general claim that knowledge entails belief, that would undermine that claim. Mm -hmm. So although it might be true that many particular kinds of knowledge entail belief in the thing that you know about, this particular other kind of knowledge of our own intentional actions wouldn't entail belief um, in the thing that you know about. And then that would mean that we can't make any very, very general claim that knowing some proposition entails believing it. Okay, can you tell me about a a philosophical position that you've changed your mind about? 
Yes, I'm sure there are loads and loads of them. One of them is, is again, to do with self-knowledge. So there's a position not so much to do with self-knowledge, but more to do with self-ascriptions. So these are self-ascriptions of psychological attitudes or other phenomena. These are statements where a person says something about her own psychology. So if I say I've got a headache or I believe that today's a Thursday or I want to have a coffee or you know and any of these kinds of statements where I self-ascribe a state of mind to myself there's a way of thinking about these self-ascriptions which denies that they express a genuine kind of knowledge so the idea and this is called expressivism the idea is that when I say I've got a headache I'm not expressing knowledge about my own state of mind about my own headache I'm just expressing my headache I'm just expressing my pain itself Why do people think this or why did I used to think this? Basically, the thought is that when it comes to these self-ascriptions, they look quite different from other kinds of assertion that we make about other people or about the world in general, in the sense that when someone says that something's the case, we kind of expect that person to be able to give reasons for thinking that what they said is true. Mm -hmm. So if I say, I don't know, it's raining or something like that, then if you don't know whether or not what I'm saying is true, you might ask me, well, why do you think it's raining? Or what's your evidence for thinking it's raining? And I might say, well, I can see that it's raining or I heard on the on the weather forecast that it's currently raining or something like that. But it looks like if I say I've got a headache, well, firstly, it's just not really appropriate for you to ask me, what's your reason for thinking you've got a headache? Or what's your evidence for thinking it's true that you've got a headache? Those, those questions just seem really out of place and really weird. And in ordinary life, if somebody responded to your question by saying that, you'd probably be quite annoyed, (laughs) but you'd also be quite confused, I think. So this kind of suggests that these kinds of questions which ask after our epistemic uh, reasons or grounds for self-ascriptions of mental states, that they seem out of place. And that's a puzzle. Like, why should they be out of place? And the expressivist view of self-ascription says, well, they're out of place because we're just not in the business of expressing knowledge when we say things about our own states of mind. Again, when I say I've got a headache, I'm just expressing my headache in the same kind of way that I would be or in something like the kind of way that I would be if I kind of groaned at you and screwed up my face or if I maybe if I reached for the painkillers. We don't question those kinds of behaviours and ask someone after their reason for thinking that they've got a headache when they're just screwing their face up in pain. We just see that as an expression of the pain itself. Mm-hmm. So with my self-ascription, when I say I've got a headache, is just an expression of my pain, and it isn't also an expression of knowledge that I've got a headache, then that would explain why asking people epistemic questions about their self-ascriptions would look out of place. I used to, I think, more or less accept that view. But I've come to change my mind about that because I don't think there's much good reason, you know, pre-theoretical reason for denying that what we say about our own states of mind are knowledgeable. So I don't think there's any good pre-theoretical reason for thinking that when I say I've got a headache, that it's not knowledge that I'm expressing when I say that. Like, if you're able to know that I've got a headache, then why aren't I able to know that I've got a headache? It seems pretty easy for me to know that I've got a headache. What could be more obvious than (laughs) having a headache when you've got one? 
So the people who want to deny that this is a kind of knowledge will obviously accept that. They don't think that you're ignorant or unaware of your own headache. It's just that they think that the concept of knowledge doesn't apply here Mm -hmm. because the concepts like evidence and epistemic reasons don't apply. So what I've kind of come to think and the way in which I've changed my mind about this is that I think that the concepts of evidence and epistemic reasons and things like this just don't need to apply to every kind of knowledge. So that it's possible to have a kind of knowledge which just doesn't rest on evidence or reasons. And actually, in this particular case of our knowledge of our own mental states, I think it can be sufficient for knowing that you've got a headache, just that you've got a headache. Some background conditions have to be in place, like you have to be awake and you have to have the concept of a headache and so on and so forth. But you don't need anything like evidence or reasons to kind of hook you up with the fact that you've got a headache. Having a headache is sufficient to be hooked up with the fact that you've got a headache because of the kind of thing a headache is. And that hooking up is kind of shorthand for knowing that you've got a headache. So I now have a kind of view on which a self-ascription, I've got a headache, it is expressive of me having a headache. So I agree with the expressivist on that. And I haven't changed my mind about that. But I also think that we can still make sense of it being expressive of my having knowledge that I've got a headache. Okay, can you tell me how you found doing philosophy during the during the past year of lockdowns and restrictions? Yeah, I think in one sense, I've been shielded from some of the more difficult aspects of it because I'm I'm currently on a research project, so I don't have a teaching load. And I know from talking to my colleagues that moving all the teaching online has been very hard. And, and obviously students have been finding it really hard as well. Mm. In a sense, I'm, I suppose, lucky that I've been sort of buffered from some of that. Equally, you know, just sort of comparing to people in other professions, I think we're very lucky doing the kind of academic work that we do, that even though it's not nice to have to be constantly, you know, a sort of disembodied head (laughs) on on Teams or on Zoom or whatever, we still are able to have a lot of the same conversations that we did before. You know, the department that I'm in is very, like, we meet up a lot and we talk philosophy a lot, which is really fantastic. So that's all kind of fine. But... (laughs) Having said that, it's been difficult in a few ways. Like I think uh, just not getting a change of scenery, you know, and just being stuck in the house for months on end is actually really bad for the brain. Mm. That's my feeling. I feel quite stagnant (laughs) in terms of writing and thinking in the past few weeks where things have started to open up again a little bit and been able to go and sit outside a coffee shop and take my laptop there and do a bit of reading and do a bit of writing. It's kind of been amazing, like how how much difference that's made to my ability to think straight. So that's sort of quite interesting. What else? Yeah, the other thing is that my partner and I have been fostering animals during this period. So normally... (laughs) normally you know we don't have a dog or a cat or anything because we're kind of away from home quite a lot and our work schedules aren't very predictable and so it's kind of hard to know how to fit in um, having an animal into that but we both really really love animals and so over these lockdowns we've been temporarily fostering animals for the RSPCA as a kind of alternative to those animals going into kennels when they're waiting to be rehomed Um, So we've had a few cats and at the moment we've got a little dog and that's just been really lovely. So, yeah, that's kind of one nice thing that's come out of lockdown. And I think in terms of doing philosophy in that context, uh, because my partner's a philosopher as well. So it's kind of nice to have another 
creature around the house that just doesn't <laughs> doesn't care at all about uh, <laughs> about academic issues and who just has kind of simple needs and just demands to go for a walk twice a day and things like that. So that's been really nice. So what's the most recent work of fiction you've read? Um, it would be hard to say what the most recent work of fiction is that I've read. I do occasionally read fiction, but it's so rare that I would have no memory at all of what the most recent thing is that I read. I think I probably haven't read any fiction for, I don't know, two years or something like that, at least. I find I when I do read it, I really like it, but... I actually find reading really difficult, which might sound a bit strange coming from someone whose job involves quite a lot of reading. But I find it really, uh, my concentration span isn't great. And it's really hard work for me to read more than a few pages. And I guess I kind of, I use up all of my capacity for reading um, for the philosophy stuff that I have to read. So it's a bit of a shame because I would like to read more fiction, but I think I just have to accept that maybe it's not for me, unfortunately. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't read very much fiction either, so that makes... Oh, that's great. That makes, I, the, whole, that always, makes the whole thing easier, yeah. Yeah, I'm always so happy when I hear someone else <laughs> say that because it's quite an embarrassing thing to admit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sometimes embarrassed by it too, but let's, yeah, let's just accept it for how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't read much fiction, that's fine. So what else do you do outside of outside of philosophy? Well, at the moment, as I mentioned, I kind of hang out with the animals um, <laughs> that I'm fostering. I really like also just get, getting out in the countryside and looking for, it sounds a bit geeky, but <laughs> looking at plants and animals okay, and yeah. fungi. I'm kind of really into fungi, actually, um, and eating the edible ones and avoiding eating the poisonous ones. And, and my favourite thing at the moment, and has been for a while, I, I've set up a dark room in a okay. cupboard in my house. So I've been uh, doing quite a lot of photography, sort of old fashioned sure. photography stuff with all the chemicals and everything. In particular, I've been making pinhole cameras okay, and great. just doing quite a lot of that. And I just absolutely love that because it's so, I don't know, it's like a kind of magic when you put the, you expose the paper, obviously, and then you you hope that you've got an image and you don't know when you go into this dark room and with a red light and then you put it in the chemicals and then either nothing happens or <laughs> something mm -hmm. awful happens or you get this image and it's just it's just kind of amazing to see it appearing yeah, and anyway that's, that's what I like doing at the moment. Are there any other topics in philosophy that you haven't worked on but but you'd quite like to? Yeah there are probably a few I suppose the one that I feel like I'm closest to starting working on at some point in the future is kind of to do with psychoanalysis and the philosophy of psychoanalysis. And in particular, I talked earlier, obviously, about things to do with self-knowledge and knowledge of other minds. So our knowledge of our own states of mind and our knowledge of other people's states of mind. And also stuff to do with expressive behaviour and how that relates to knowledge and and, uh, and things like that. And I think that uh, a really, really interesting set of questions is kind of to do with how all of that stuff works in the particular case of psychoanalysis or psychotherapy. So what kind of knowledge does a psychotherapist have of her client's mind? Okay. What kind of a lack of knowledge do we have of our own unconscious states 
you know, there's a kind of ideal image of psychotherapy as going from not knowing certain things about your unconscious to knowing about them. And somehow that facilitates growth or has a kind of curative dimension to it or who knows exactly how it works. But I'm kind of interested in how the epistemology relates to the therapy in psychotherapy. So also another thing is like, what exactly is the nature of the particular kind of interpersonal relationship between therapist and client? Yeah, what's the epistemology of that? But also there's something a bit more general, like what's the interpersonal ethics of that? And um, anyway, so there's just a bunch of really interesting questions there that I really hope I'm going to be able to look at. I've sort of thought a little bit about them, but I've never done any proper work on that stuff. So I'd like to do that at some point in the not too distant future. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I don't think I had a settled... I don't think I really wanted to do anything. Um, (laughs) That's okay. I remember being asked by adults this question and just what I really remember about it was just feeling irritated because I felt like the tone of voice they were asking the question in was very patronising. So that's kind of my main memory of, of at least being asked that when I was young. But the only thing I can remember maybe thinking about doing was to be a vet. Um, obviously because I like animals and stuff like that but I definitely didn't sort of want to be a philosopher I mean I think I think I would have wanted to be a philosopher if I'd known that that was actually a job that (laughs) a person could do these days and not just Uh, yeah I don't remember um, the careers event at school being mentioned yeah exactly no one said I mean why would they it's a good job no one does because there already aren't enough jobs <laughs> in philosophy and if more people I mean, knew about it then it'd be even, but even academic any kind of academic isn't really mentioned as a job yeah like teacher lecturer I guess is a thing that maybe mentioned as a, as a career to kids but I don't think like research or academic definitely but certainly not. when I was at school it was never mentioned as something. no me either and I mean people they definitely would want you to go to university but they wouldn't they wouldn't sort of want you to <laughs> carry on there. at university and <laughs> yeah. then teach other people who might want to go to university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I eventually sort of discovered that philosophy was a job that I could do, or even just that it was a thing that you could do at university, I think. I went to art college after I left school just for a foundation year, and I met someone there who was also just there for the foundation year, and he was going on to do philosophy afterwards. And I was like, oh, what's philosophy? <laughs> And this was at the age of sort of, I don't know, like 18, 19 or something, by which time I obviously should have known the answer to that question. And then he told me what it was. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what I've been like thinking about <laughs> since I was five years old. And then immediately at that point, I was like, I want to do this. And so I ended up doing that. But certainly I had no idea about it when I was a child. So we used to, this, these final questions we used to ask them. We used to ask people what they liked about being a philosopher, followed by what they disliked. But feedback is that it's maybe better to start with, it was maybe better to end with the positives rather than with the negatives. So we'll try it the other way around if that's okay with you. So okay. what what don't you like about being a philosopher? <laughs> um, okay, let me, this could take a while. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, what don't I like about being a philosopher? I find I'm quite an anxious person and I find a lot of different aspects of, not so much doing philosophy, but having to do philosophy. <laughs> um, I when it's your job, you uh-huh. you you know, you're not just thinking about it when you feel like it. You mm-hmm. that's your job. So I so I kind of find a lot of aspects of it quite anxiety provoking because if you're not in the right frame of mind for trying to 
figure out what to say about this issue or that issue, then it can really be very difficult to sort of force it. Um, and sometimes you might not be in the right frame of mind for, you know, for a long period, but yet you have deadlines and you have papers to write and you have lectures to give and you have conference talks to give and so on. And that kind of sort of feeling of, oh, I have to come up with something to say, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not really thinking in the right way at the moment in order to do that. Like, I find that very stressful. So, yeah, I suppose that's one of the things I don't like about it. Yeah. And, what, and what do you like about being a philosopher? What I like about being a philosopher is uh, exactly the same issues, but when I, I'm in the right frame of mind for it. <laughs> right. So the thought of it being your job to think about things that interest you and write about them and spend time developing your own thoughts about them and understanding what other people think about them and discussing them with other people that are incredibly intelligent and very, very interesting that's just kind of amazing that that you can earn a living with that as a substantial part of your job. So yeah, I love that. Okay, thank you very much, Lucy. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.